Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, in case you didn't know, in the church calendar today is uh, Pentecost Sunday. And it's the perfect Sunday to begin this new series in Genesis. See, Genesis is too, too much at the beginning of my Bible. I can't keep my Bible open. Um, all right. Pentecost Sunday is the perfect Sunday to begin this new series in Genesis, especially with these verses, because immediately, at the very beginning of the Bible, we are introduced to the Spirit of God. And on Pentecost, we celebrate that Spirit of God coming down and indwelling all of God's people. And so we're going to touch on that later. It's, it was, we're going to head that direction. Uh, but we are beginning a new series in Genesis today. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis itself, the word itself, just means beginning. And so when we go to Genesis, we are starting at the beginning, which is a really interesting thing. Because if you think about human storytelling, no one, none of you, none of us have ever told or read or seen or heard a story that begins at the beginning. None of our stories begin at the beginning. They all begin in the middle of something else. We need context to understand them. We're always dropped into the middle of story. And the explanation of what's going on outside of the story is called exposition. Every single one of our stories needs exposition. This is why I've never been able to write a story. Man, I have sat down so many times to try and write a story. I thought, man, that would be a great story to tell. Only my problem is I get so caught up in exposition that I end up like going back and back and back and back. It's one of the reasons I love church history, because I love studying the history of the church from the very beginning. Because when you go back to the very beginning, you see the roots of all the things that are happening now. It's one of my problems with American history, or at least popular level American history. Americans in general don't have long memories. We have very short memories, right? We, we think that like going back to 1776 is a long time. And historically, that is like, that's a blip on the radar. And if you want to understand the story of the United States, you got to go back to Plato. Like you got to go back thousands of years to begin to understand the story of where we are now. But Americans in general, we think back to like 1945. Like the end of World War II is kind of the beginning of modern America. And you're like, actually, no, no, those ideas, they go, they go way, you got to really start way back. And so we, we have a hard time as human beings, and then specifically as Americans with short memories, going back to the beginning of anything and really understanding what ancient history has to do with anything. This is why history is such a boring subject for so many people. Until you really get into history and you begin to understand the interconnectedness of everything in the world and everything in history, and then you can begin to see the connections between different things. Oftentimes after I've preached or when we're doing a Bible study and we're talking about something, I'll make some connection between some obscure passage in the Old Testament and what we're discussing or some obscure thing because the Bible is entirely interrelated. And people will always be like, wow, pastor, how did you get there? How did you come up with that? And I'm like, I know the Bible. 
and the Bible is fully interconnected. And when you know the Scripture, and you see its interconnectivity, then you see how this thing that happened here in this story is not like a one-off. It's not isolated. It connects to everything else that's come before it. But we treat the Bible like we treat history, with short memories and narrow focus. And so we tend to think that, like, this verse is kind of standalone. When, when it's not, it's all interconnected. And that's why we go back to Genesis. That's why we go back to the very beginning, because we cannot understand the human condition. We can't understand the world we live in unless we begin to understand its origins. Superhero fans will know this. Superhero fans will get this. Right? All of the Marvel movies begin with an origin story. Because you got to know how Iron Man got in that suit to understand why he does the things he does. You've got to know how Ant-Man ended up being this big to know why he does the things he does, right? You've got to understand people's stories to be able to understand the decisions they make and the things that they do. And when we look out at the world and we are brokenhearted by the state of it, because I don't know a single person in the world who would say, no, the world's just perfect the way it is. It's just great. I, this, this is absolutely, we are living our best life as earth. No one would say that. But to understand the situation of the world as it is, we have to go back to the beginning. And we have to understand how it all started. And that's why we go back to Genesis. So this series, we're going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now I've got to address something real quick, right out the gate here. Some people in this room or listening online are like, literal history. God created the world in seven 24-hour days, and if you depart from that, you're departing from Christian orthodoxy, and you've denied the authority of the Bible. And some people listening, and some people here are like, you know what? It doesn't really matter if it was seven literal 24-hour days, or if it was 7,000 years, or 7 billion years, or 100 billion years. That's not the point of the beginning of Genesis. And then there are every kind of opinion in between. And here's, here's where we're going to start. I don't really give a rip what you think about the literal history of the seven days of creation, because that's not the point. Genesis is not a science textbook, right? But here's what will not be allowed, okay? You can hold this opinion yourself, but don't try and teach it in this church. It will not be allowed for anyone to say, if you deny a literal 24-hour, seven-day creation, you're denying the authority of Scripture and you've departed from the faith. That will not be allowed. That's the only thing that's heresy right here when it comes to this text. And so we're going to be approaching this from the perspective that regardless of your view of the scientific value of Genesis 1 through 11, this is not the point of the book. The point of the beginning of the Bible, the point of Genesis 1 through 11, is to teach us about God, to teach us about us, and to teach us how to relate to God. That's why they're there. That's the purpose of these chapters. And so that's the position we're going to be taking. Okay, and we're not going to have arguments about creationism or any of that stuff, because at the end of the day, what we're learning, we're learning about the character of our God, how God created everything, and specifically for us, what in the world went wrong, right? If God made all this stuff good, if God's intention for creation was good, and God is 
perfect and God is all-powerful, then how in the world did we end up where we are right now? How did we end up in a world that is broken by natural disasters and mass shootings and crime and people hurting people and pride? How did we end up in a world where I look in the mirror and I see someone I don't recognize or a person that I don't want to be because I see the things that I do and I don't like them? If God created everything good, how did we end up here? What went wrong? And then we're, of course, going to see how Jesus makes it right again. So we're not going to leave you in that hopeless place, all right? We're always going to come back to Jesus because he is our center. Because he is the one who's called us together. He is the one who calls us here. So that's why we study Genesis. We study Genesis because it's valuable to understand our origins. And because you cannot understand our God and Father without understanding Genesis, without seeing the character of God on display and understanding why our Creator God did what God did and why God does what God does. And you can't understand human relation to God or human relationships with one another unless we go back to the beginning and we see what they were intended to be and how they fell short of that. And so that's why we're in Genesis. And so we're starting at the beginning. The very beginning, two verses today. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. That sets us on the right path. Those words right there tell us what all of the scripture is about. The Bible is not about me. The Bible is not about my country. The Bible is not about a roadmap of world history leading me to the end. The Bible is about God. It's about who God is, what God has done, why God has done those things, and how we relate to this God. And so we have to begin here with these words, in the beginning, God. And let us never move past that. That is the height of theology, to understand who God is. And that the scriptures, the Christian scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, the Bible itself is about God. So we begin, in the beginning, God. Now this story is taking us back to the beginning. This is the only story we tell that truly goes back to the very beginning. And so we're starting before anything is created. We're starting before there's anything there to work with. There's no land, there's no people. But there is something there. There's something present. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, we begin, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So you imagine here that the earth is just this big watery ball. This is one reason, by the way, that I don't believe in a literal interpretation, because what are we starting with here? But you imagine in this story that there's this dark, watery ball, and above those waters is hovering the Spirit of God. Now, why in the world do we start there? Have you ever wondered that? Like, we take this for granted. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've been reading this forever, you've heard, in the beginning God created, and then you read this verse, and you just kind of accept it. But why? Why do we start with water? 
Why is there formlessness and void? And why in the world is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters? This is a bizarre image. This is really weird. And it doesn't make sense as a beginning story. Unless you know the stories of the other cultures. So in the ancient world, in, in the cultures that surrounded the Hebrews, in the culture that surrounded Egypt and the place where, where Moses was teaching the people of God their history, the creation narratives almost always began with water. They almost always began with the sea. And the sea was this chaotic thing. It was scary. People didn't venture out into the sea. The sea is deep and you can't see to the bottom of it and anything could be living down there. The sea is a terrifying place, and no one has control over the sea. You can't control the waters. You can't control the weather. It's the most chaotic thing you experience. And so the sea is the realm of the monsters. The sea is the realm of chaos. The sea is the uncontrollable. Not even the gods can control the sea. And so in the ancient creation narratives that, that surrounded these Hebrew people, oftentimes what happened is, the, the creator goddess or the creator god would come from the sea, and they're really monstrous. In almost all the creation narratives of the ancient Near East, of the world around the Hebrew cultures, people are created as slaves to the gods. People are created to be slaves and servants to the gods. People are not created in the image of God. They're made as something way less than the gods to be their peons, to be their bonded slaves to serve them and work for them. Or worse, people are created out of the remnants of a god who was killed. Like in the Babylonian creation narrative, there's this, there's this goddess Tiamat who comes up out of the waters and engages in this big battle, and Tiamat gets killed, and it's out of Tiamat's entrails that people come. That's, that's what the world was telling people they were. You're just reformed entrails. You're just, you're nothing. And so into this world comes this Hebrew creation narrative where the creator God is over those waters, the waters that birthed Tiamat and the, the evil deities and gods of the ancient world, the waters that hid and held onto the, the other gods of the ancient world. Here, Yahweh's spirit, the spirit God, the God's spirit of the Hebrew people is hovering over the waters. Not under, not in, not hidden, not down in the depths, but the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos and over the darkness and over the unknown. And so for these people, this is a great comfort. For the people who have grown up hearing the stories of human beings being created as bond slaves to different gods and born out of war between deities, for these people, this is a great Comfort. We lose this because we don't have competing creation narratives in our world. But for these folks, this is a high honor. Our God is not the one who dwells at the bottom of the ocean. Our God is not the one who emerges from chaos. Our God is the one who hovers above the chaos and over whom the chaos has no power and no control. Our God is the one who controls the chaos. And so for people who look out upon the ocean, look out upon the sea, and they're terrified because that's the realm of the monsters. It's the place of chaos. It's the place we cannot tame or we cannot control. These people are saying, no, our God is the one who controls the sea. Our God is the one who brings order from chaos. And here the Spirit of God 
is hovering above the waters. And instead of the waters rising up to overcome the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God tames the waters and controls the chaos. And that's why we begin here. That's why we begin with the Spirit of God hovering over the formlessness and void. And so we've talked about the waters, but, but they're formless and void. There's, there's no form to it. That, it's not a ball. It's just water. There's no shape to it. There's no structure. There's no order whatsoever. It is entirely inhospitable to humanity. You couldn't live there. You couldn't tame it. You couldn't sail it. You couldn't work on it. It's purposeless for people. And so the Spirit of God is hovering over that which is formless and void, purposelessness, purposeless, unusable, inhospitable to life. You can do nothing with it. And out of this purposelessness, God brings order and purpose. He calls up the land, tames the seas, calls down the waters from the heavens to water the earth. And so we're going to get into the actual creation of everything in the coming weeks. But what you need to know today is that from the beginning, the God of the Hebrews and the God of Jesus and the God of the Christian Bible is the God who brings order from chaos. The God over whom chaos has no power. The God who stands uncontested, where all of the other ancient creation narratives had gods at war with one another, this God stands alone, master of all. In fact, in Hebrew, this God's name right now is Elohim, which is a plural name for God. It's a way of the Hebrew people saying, our God is the God that consumes all others. Our God is the one who is above all others. Our God is so magnified, so glorified, so on high that our God takes the name of all the other gods and controls all the others. Our God has no equal. Our God stands alone, above the chaos, out of the water, uncontested in his rule and reign over the world. From the beginning, this was the narrative that the Hebrew people believed. From the beginning, this was the narrative that the Jewish people held on to. Our God is not not plagued with the, with the fighting and the issues that all of the pagan deities have fighting with one another because our God stands apart and supreme above any other faith in the world. And our God stands over the waters. Now, all the way through the time of Jesus, the sea and the waters are seen in that, as that realm of chaos. They're seen as that place that, that chaos comes from, the mysterious deep, the scary, the challenging, that which you cannot control and over which you have no power. Even the seafaring peoples around them, and the, the Hebrews were not seafaring people. They did not make boats. They did not make ships. Other than fishing on the Sea of Galilee, they weren't doing a lot out on the water. They, that was not them. But there were people called the Phoenicians who lived in the same area at the same time. Phoenicians were traders. They traveled across the Mediterranean Sea. You would think the Phoenicians were like masters of the sea, but even they were terrified of the sea. You go to the story of Jonah. <clears throat> Jonah gets on a Phoenician ship to go from Joppa to Tarshish. He's trying to get away from God, from Yahweh, who's called him, and he gets on this Phoenician ship, and this big storm comes, and you see these Phoenician sailors, the ones who know the water, they know the sea, they know it all, and they are terrified of the unknown. 
Across the ancient world, across cultures, the sea was the unknown. It was the chaotic. It was the terrifying. That's why in the story of Jonah, when Jonah says, hey, throw me overboard as an offering to my God, then the waters will calm. When the waters calmed after they threw Jonah overboard, the Phoenician sailors offered sacrifices to Yahweh, Jonah's God, because he could control the waters. And they didn't know there was a God who can control the waters. They lived in an uncontrollable world. So when we come up to the time of Jesus, Jesus is living in a city called Capernaum. This town on the tip of the Sea of Galilee, in the north of the, of the Sea of Galilee, that was his home base. He probably had a house there. He worked from there. A lot of his disciples and followers lived in Capernaum or around that area, and they were fishermen. We know, of course, of Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, these fishermen who were out on the Sea of Galilee. They lived in this port town, and they were terrified of the storms. The Sea of Galilee, because of the way it sits, it, it gets ravaged by the winds, and it can get real scary real fast. The waves can come up, and these guys are in little fishing boats out on the sea, and if they see a storm coming, they book it. They get back to shore as quick as they can. They're terrified of storms on the sea because their boats can capsize at any moment, and they know there's no controlling the storms. So one day, we, have, we read in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, one day, they're out on, the, out on the, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they're fishing, and Jesus is in the boat. And they're heading from one place to another, and this big storm comes up, kind of unexpected. This big storm happens, and it's waving their boat around, and it's moving them all around. And Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping. through. You ever been on a boat that's, I mean, we're in Colorado. I doubt a lot of you have really been on big boats in, like, the ocean, right? But if you're out on a sea... Or, yeah, a big lake, something you can't see the edge of the water. You know, it's really big, right? If you're out on a boat like that and a storm comes, man, you, you, there's no sleeping for you, right? You're getting tossed left and right. You're getting blown around. You're rolling back and forth. Jesus is just sleeping in the boat peacefully. His trust in God is so great, he can sleep through this terrifying incident. And these fishermen who are on the boat with him, the guys who live on the water, they're terrified and they go to Jesus and like Jesus what are you doing man like we're gonna die the boat's gonna capsize and Jesus you get the sense in the narrative and I can't confirm this but you get the sense in the narrative Jesus is almost annoyed with them he's like I was having a good nap man I was getting some good rest and here you guys are all terrified of the ocean or the sea and so Jesus steps out and he steps to the bow of the boat and he says peace be still and what happens that lake calms immediately. And the fishermen in the boat, the disciples of Jesus say, who is this who even the wind and the waves obey? And if you don't know that history of the fear of the water, of the water as the source of all the chaos and the evil in the world, of the, the raging sea as the symbol of everything that's wrong and everything that's uncontrollable, if you don't understand that only the God of the Old Testament, only Yahweh had any power over the wind and the waves, if you don't know that, you don't know how to read Jesus saying, peace be still. But the moment that Jesus does that, his followers go, that's God. Only God can do that. Even more than raising the dead, even more than the other miracles Jesus does, this is the thing that cements in their mind, we're dealing with somebody who's very, very different. 
Yeah, the, Elijah, the prophet Elijah, he raised the dead. The prophet Elisha, he raised the dead. We've seen that happen before. We know that God will do that through people. God's never calmed a storm through human beings. Certainly never a human being who stood up and under his own authority said peace to the wind and the waves. And so these guys on the boat with him, they're looking at Jesus and they're like, whoa, this guy, he is something different. He's God. And then there's another episode in John chapter 6 where they're again out on a boat. Jesus has just fed the 4,000 and he was, he's kind of hung back. And he told his disciples that they were on the, they were on the lake shore and there are boats there. And, and so what happens is they're, they're there and they're going to go to a town. They're going to go, I think, to, anyway, they're going to go to one of the towns. And you've got two options. You can either take the boat across the lake and just kind of go along the edge, or you can just walk around the, the shore. And so Jesus says to his disciples, hey, why don't you guys take the boats, leave me alone, give me some space, I'm going to walk to town and I'll meet you there. And so the guys get in the boats and they start going. And the same thing happens. A big storm comes. And they get scared. And in the middle of the storm, what do they see? Jesus come, walking out on that water to the boat. In the middle of the storm, calmly as he can be, here comes Jesus, walking upon the stormy sea, coming out to this boat. And at first, the disciples look at him and they go, is that a ghost? Like, what's less believable? Jesus is walking on the water or there's a ghost walking toward you? I mean, either way, there's something out there on the water. And their first inclination is, this ain't good. This is not good. Right? No physical being could walk on that water. It's got to be a ghost. And so Jesus is walking out on the water and they watch him. That, is that a ghost? And then they see that it's Jesus. And that's when Simon Peter says, hey, if it's really you, Lord, bid me come out to you and... Simon looks out at the winds and the waves and he begins to doubt Jesus or, or he at least turns his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. Jesus standing there with power over the wind and waves raises Simon up and then they get into the boat and immediately the storm calms because Jesus is the Lord of the storm. Jesus is the Lord of chaos. Jesus is empowered by that Spirit of God that was hovering over the waters at the beginning. These episodes, more than anything else, cement in Jesus' followers' mind that this guy is the very God that we worship. This guy. No one else has control over the chaos of the sea. No one else has control over the chaos of the world. No one else can, can control the wind and the waves. Everyone else is swallowed up by the chaos of the world, but this guy walks on it. This guy calms the sea, calms the waves. This guy has power and control over even the most destructive, chaotic forces of the world. This guy is something different. Empowered by God's Spirit, empowered by that very Spirit of God who hovered over the waters back in Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus controls the wind and the waves. And so I said, on this Pentecost Sunday, I can't think of a better place to begin than right here at the beginning with the Spirit of God that controls and brings order to the chaos of our world. And ultimately, to God in the flesh, Jesus Christ 
empowered by the Spirit of God who gives us that same Spirit that brings order to the chaos of our world, brings order to the chaos of our lives. Jesus, who steps in and says, no, nothing can overcome me. Nothing can control me. I will not be drowned by the chaotic waves of the ocean. I will not be killed by a cross. I will take up my life and I will rise again and I will defeat everything that stands opposed to you. And all that chaos of the world that terrifies you, all that chaos of the world that causes you to stand still and shake so that you can't even move, Jesus says, I have overcome it. Take heart. For I have overcome the world. That's Jesus. That's who our God is. That's our Lord, our King, our Master. The one who went to a cross and said all the chaos of the Roman Empire and all the chaos of this broken religious system and all the chaos of the sin of the world may take my flesh, but they cannot take my life. I will rise again and promise you the same future. That's who our King is. And that's the Spirit of God that now comes to live within you and me on this Pentecost Sunday. When we say yes to King Jesus, when we look upon the King who could not be overcome by chaos, but brought order out of our chaos, brought life out of our depth, ordered our steps, when we bow the knee to King Jesus and we say, Jesus, take my sin away. Wash it away. It's that same Jesus who gives us the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that hovered over the waters. The Spirit of God that empowered Jesus in His life. And the Spirit of God today that will order our lives and give us victory over everything that would stand opposed to us. Especially over our own sin and shame and brokenness. It's that Spirit of God that brings that person in the mirror who I can't stand, that person in the mirror who I question, where did all this come from? And makes him into the person that God always wanted him to be. The person that I desperately long to be. If the Spirit of God can bring order out of the chaos of the waves and call the earth up out of the waters and call the waters down out of the heavens to water the earth, if that same Spirit of God can breathe breath into a formed body if that same Spirit of God can create all that we see around us, that same Spirit of God can transform this broken heart. Can wash away my sin and make me like Jesus. And that's the Spirit that we long for today. The Holy Spirit of God to come live within us, to transform us from sinful, broken creatures into creatures of glory, made in the image of Jesus Christ, to restore to us all the dignity of that original creation when God said, let us make humankind in our image, holy. That's what we long for today. And so I invite you today to invite that spirit to live within you. To repent of sin, to say, God, I, I, I don't want my sin. I want to be like you, Jesus. Would you send your Holy Spirit to live within me? Would you empower me with your Holy Spirit? Give me the life that only you can give. And so I invite you now to pray with me before we partake of the bread and the cup. 
Holy God, Father, Holy Spirit, Lord Jesus, today we bow before you and we lay our sin down before you. We say, God, I I long to be like Jesus. I long for my sin to be forgiven. I long to have your Holy Spirit live within me, to wash away my sin and empower me to live as Jesus did. Empower me to live the life that you are calling me to. Empower me to love. Empower me to give. Empower me to serve. Empower me to to lay myself down for my neighbors just as you have laid your life down for us, Jesus. King Jesus, take over today. Send us your Holy Spirit to live within us and move among us and empower us to be your witnesses in the world, to be those ambassadors that we read about earlier, going to a world that is longing for you and saying, be reconciled to God because he made him who had no sin be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.